Thank you very much, Sharon. Great uh, introduction to my sermon. Also, um, you should have received a bulletin, and if you care to during the sermon, you may want to take some notes, and uh, there are like four spaces to fill in. Also, uh, to notice the takeaways that we'll be looking at toward the end of my sermon. Let's look to God in prayer. Thank you, O God, for this time to be together around your word. We pray, Lord, for the anointing of your spirit to be upon us, that we would be able to put aside all the thoughts of activities of lunch, activities of this week, and or the work and responsibilities of the past week, but to be able to focus now on you. We pray, O God, for the freedom of your spirit to be upon us as we share together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this book, tells the story of his brother who played the part of Noah in the performance Noah's Flood by Benjamin Britten. And his costume was really, really superb. And though he was only 17 years old, his makeup artist made him look as if he were an old man complete with gray beard and gray hair. So the production required that he enter the auditorium through the, through the back. And when he got there, an overzealous usher failed to recognize him and took him, thought he was an elderly bum, and tried to stop him from getting into the performance that he had a main role. That was a great, great compliment to the makeup artist. But the ancient Greeks in their productions, in their plays, were not so advanced. The actors in their plays had masks that they held on sticks, for, and when the people were pretending to be something, when they, in fact, were something else. And so the word hypocrite or the, word, the words hypocrisy, those two words come from the Greek that means the holding a mask on a stick in front of a person. So the Apostle Paul needed to write this letter to the, to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was like a region or province, a number of churches there, so it was like a a circle letter going from one church to the next. And they, he needed to write this, this letter to the churches of Galatia to correct some misunderstandings. And one of the main misunderstandings was that there were Judaizers, persons whom we would call Judaizers, who came into Galatia and taught that the new believers needed to first follow all the Jewish laws, that the males needed to accept circumcision, and that all the new believers, males and females, needed to observe the Jewish holidays and the holy days. These beliefs and these understandings were appendages or addenda to the gospel that Paul was preaching. Paul was not teaching this. Paul was not preaching this. So Paul needed to write this letter to correct these misunderstandings. 
And in writing to the believers, Paul testifies in this part of Galatians that the eye of his life has been crucified with Christ. And Christ, who, who demonstrated God's love by giving his life on the cross, that Christ died and lives in him. And he not only confronts them directly in verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 1, but he also then tells them in this chapter that I'm focusing on this morning about his confrontation with Peter. Peter, who had gone off the track with what Sharon was talking about, with the peer pressure around him. Peter, this stalwart leader, this disciple, this spokesperson for the disciples, got it wrong. There were certain representatives and leaders from the church in Jerusalem who came to Galatia and who came to where Peter was in Antioch and came from the Jerusalem church and Peter knew that they would not be that they would not accept what he was doing. So in addition to the misunderstandings of the purpose of the law and the truth of the gospel, there's another situation that the Apostle Paul needs to rectify. There were some believers also in the region of Galatia who questioned Paul's authority and his apostleship. They didn't accept the fact because he had not he had not been physically with Jesus. They questioned whether indeed that he whether he was a true apostle. And therefore, Paul states explicitly that he is an apostle. He says in verse 1 in his opening his opening comment to the Galatians, he says, Paul an apostle sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul makes this astounding claim that he is indeed an apostle, claiming his apostleship direct from God, not through human means. But Paul insists that he is an apostle, and he claims that authority right from the beginning, right from the opening of his letter. He doesn't beat around the bush. He indicates that indeed he was called by God to serve as an apostle. And Paul made the surprising claim that he was ordained by God to, to uh, preach to the Gentiles that God revealed salvation to the Gentiles through him. So Paul, the church planter, Paul, the apostle, needed to proclaim and needed to to defend his apostleship. And this problem of his authority is dealt with in these first two chapters. So an outline, we might say an outline of these first two chapters looks like this. In verses 11 to 24 of the first chapter, we see, and we already already mentioned this, that the source of the gospel, the source of his 
his apostleship is in God. The source of the gospel is in God. And then in the first part of chapter 2, which we will not be looking at today, the first part of chapter 2, Paul's apostleship is confirmed by the Jerusalem church. He talks about going to the church, and they, they, confer, they confirm his apostleship. And then verses 11 to 21, uh, which we will be looking at today, is Paul's apostleship is confirmed by the example with Peter, his confrontation with Peter that he describes in verses 11 to 21. So uh, with that, I'd like to look at um, verses 11 to 21. That's found on page 1152 in your pew Bible. It's also uh, on the PowerPoint on the overhead or on the uh, screen. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Peter came to Antioch, the place where the believers were first called Christians, and at a public meeting, Paul confronted Peter, and Paul describes the situation like this. He says, Peter first ate with the, the non-Jewish believers, and this could be at the love feast or even at an ordinary meal, but when a delegation then came from James, a delegation 
from the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, the brother of Jesus, was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And when a delegation doesn't really say that they were sent by James, but they came from James. And then Peter, Peter knowing, knowing that this would be upsetting, what he was doing, Peter drew back because he was afraid of these legalists from the mother church in Jerusalem. So Paul confronts Peter in this error and this lack of consistency in his life and actions. And Paul says, very forthrightly, Paul says, I opposed him to his faith, to his face. N.T. Wright puts it this way regarding these people from James. Peter knew that they were hardliners who wouldn't approve of the Antioch practice. So he holds the mask of Jewish respectability in front of his real face, which means that for the moment he will separate himself from the Gentile Christians. So convincing is his mask that the other Jewish Christians are taken in by it, and even Barnabas goes along with the play acting, the mask wearing, the sham, end of quote. So though Peter is a Jew, Peter is living like a Gentile. Peter does not insist or does not follow all the legalistic rules that the Jews needed to follow regarding eating together, eating with Gentiles. He relaxed the rules and he associated with the Gentiles even eating with them. Now, today, we can hardly grasp the reality of, and the struggle that the early church had between Jew and Gentiles and eating one with another. But this was really a big deal so that, so that Peter is eating with the Gentile believers. And so he's asked, and that is why Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Because Peter, as a Jew, isn't even living like a Jew. So the implications, the implication for the Galatian believers are clear. And Jacob Elias says in his comments on this, Paul wants the people of the Galatian churches to hear how this episode informs their situation. Paul is offering the Galatian believers strong encouragement not to abandon their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ in favor of another gospel that requires the observance of certain rituals of the law. End of quote. But let's not be too hard on Peter. Because we too, as Sharon so aptly pointed out to the children, we too are tempted to live inconsistently and to conform to others around us. In a survey of teenagers, only 10% indicated that they are not and have not been influenced by peer pressure. So that means 90% of teenagers would say that they are influenced by peer pressure. A survey made three conclusions about the effect of peer pressure, particularly in the area of drug and alcohol use. 
They stated, the teens with, with friends who do drugs and drink alcohol are more likely to do the same, and they're more likely to convince their friends to do it too. And teens that do drugs and drink alcohol are more likely to seek out other teens who do the same. But it's not only teens. Even adults, like the Apostle Peter, are influenced by peer pressure. One study indicated that resistance to peer pressure grew significantly between the ages of 18 and 30. And therefore, if you entered adulthood succumbing to peer pressure, there's a likelihood that as an adult, you also will succumb to peer pressure. But Paul here clearly testifies that the eye of his life has been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in him. The eye, the ego part of his life, has been crucified. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in the remainder of this chapter, Paul enters into a theological discussion about salvation, about salvation through faith in and through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ alone, and not as these other teachers were trying to stress that they needed to add something to the gospel, that they needed to add the Jewish regulations to the gospel. And Paul, this is a big deal to Paul, because he says, in Peter's action and in the delegation of the Jews from Jerusalem, who tried to convince these, Jew these believers, these Gentile believers, to upgrade their Christian experience. The truth of the gospel was at stake. And so Paul uses the expression, the truth of the gospel, in verse 14a, when he says, but when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So we might ask, what is the truth of the gospel? It is that we are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ who was sent by God and who was faithfully lived a life, gave himself up on the cross so that we might live. In Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in and of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in or of, it can mean both, by faith in and of Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. Again, quoting Jacob Elias. God's initiative in Christ, who was faithful even to his death on the cross, invites all humanity, regardless of ethnicity or economic status or gender, to respond in faith. End of quote. So here, Paul uses the word justified to explain what happens to believers as they accept the work of Christ on the cross. 
what happens to believers as they accept by faith the work of Christ on the cross. So, in general use, the word justified means to make an excuse for what a person is or does. If we forget to do something, we might say, well, I was in a hurry. Or if we are, did not get much sleep the night before, we might say, well, I was really, really sleep-deprived, and so justifying by what happened. The word justify is also used on, on your word processing on Microsoft Word to line up the, the end of the type on the page so, that the, the, so you have a nice, clean-looking page. The word justify is used on modern-day computers in, uh, it, for that reason, to create a clean-looking page. But here, Paul uses the word that we are justified, or another way, one way of thinking about this is means just as if I had not sinned, to justify. George Brunk III illuminates it this way. In light of Paul's conviction that God has acted in Jesus Christ to save, it is best to understand justification as God's act of rectifying, in other words, making right the sinner. In doing this, God recognizes the forgiven status of the sinner, and that is acquittal in legal terms. That's the term that Paul is using here. And sets the sinner on the path of righteous living, spiritual relationship, and moral renewal, end of quote. Paul expounds on his sermon to Peter. He expounds on this discourse. It, it, uh, some scholars aren't sure whether, whether this is really what he told all to Peter or whether he was just telling to the, to the Galatian believers. We aren't sure where Paul is quoting exactly. But anyway, we'll assume that Paul is expounding. Paul gave this whole discourse to Peter, and he emphasized that life must be lived through the centrality of Christ. Paul emphasized to the believers that it's through faith in and of Jesus, that faith is more than coming to salvation, more than coming to Jesus at the time of salvation. We might have done that years ago, a long, long time ago. And Paul is saying that that it's much more than that, that it's continuing to connect with Christ throughout the lifespan. George Brunk III says, authentic Christian faith involves constant trust in and reliance on Christ in every aspect and at every stage of life, end of quote. So it's not just a once and done thing. It's a relationship with a person, a relationship with Jesus Christ, an ongoing recognition that we can fully rely on God all through the stages of life. And it's not just that we get to adulthood and then it's we glide through the rest of life. There are continuing stages in adulthood also. So let's look at the takeaways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's look at the takeaways. 
How can we apply this to our day and to our time? We see from this passage that we are all accountable to each other. No leader is beyond or above accountability. All of us, leaders included, need the counsel, the admonition, and correction by other believers so that we can stay true to Jesus. All of us are prone to get off track, so we need the counsel and the admonition of others. Paul was willing to call Peter out, and he even did this publicly, he says. Secondly, our lives and actions influence and affect others. Parents are very much aware of the children that are growing up, the youngsters that are growing up in their home, and that these youngsters copy the actions of the parents. But as older adults, we may not be aware as to how much we influence others around us. One can almost hear the Apostle Paul's anguish and disappointment when in talking about Peter's hypocrisy, he says, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Luke describes Barnabas as a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And yet, even though he was full of the Spirit, and even though he had lots of faith, Barnabas followed Peter's example and was led astray. And we can almost hear the pathos, the pain in Paul's voice when he says, the Jews were led astray, and not only the Jews, but also my co-worker Barnabas. Three, justification by faith in and of Jesus Christ has ethical implications. So the fact that we are justified by faith means that I live a different life on the Monday through Saturday workaday world. I'm, my decisions are different because I have claimed the name of Christ. And so therefore... If we claim the name of Christ, we live a life of truthfulness, integrity, and honesty, and openness, even though some other believers may not live that way. Four, peer pressure is a powerful and insidious force. Peter, a pillar of the church, was influenced by the pressure of his peers from Jerusalem. He didn't want to disappoint the legalists back home, so he stepped back from relating to the the Gentile believers. And number five, God acquits us and makes us right through faith in and of Jesus. This is not our own work. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Meyer Augsburger writes in his book on the robe of righteousness, and he says, he explains that Paul Tournier was a Swiss psychiatrist who taught that in our lives as sinners, the ego had taken control of our lives and became the center. 
the real self, the capital I, was shoved out to the periphery. But when we come to Christ, the ego is crucified and rendered ineffective to control one's life and is now moved to the periphery. Christ is now in the center instead of the ego. So Myron asks, what happens to the I, the true self? Turnier suggests that the I is in the center with Christ. The true self is in the center with Christ. And so Paul can say, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Like the young man playing Noah in the play, Noah's Flood, we are tempted to not be ourselves, to try to become someone else. And Paul is saying to the Galatians and to each of us this morning to be who we are in Christ. Paul challenges us to live out the truth of the gospel, to live consistent lives, and to be who we are in Christ Jesus. Let us go with that instruction this day.